Blog Talk Radio. I am a Reiki master and certified sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our chat room is open, so feel free to join the discussion that is already happening. I do keep an eye on the chat room, so if you have a question, go ahead and post it, and we'll do our best to get your question on air. As an alternative, for those of you who are on the go and you can't continue to listen online, you may simply call us by dialing 347-202-0227. And that way you can listen via phone, or if you are driving about, if you would please use your Bluetooth. What are your passions and talents? We all have gifts to share with the world. Do you know what your gifts are? Have you ever given up a dream in order to be more practical in making a living? Do you long to pick up that dream again? Do you worry that perhaps it's too late to become who you might have been? Well, have no fear. It is not. 
It's never too late to be what you might have been. My guest tonight is B.J. Gallagher, an international best-selling author who graduated from the University of Southern California with a B.A. in sociology. She's been featured on the CBS Evening News, the Today Show, Fox News, PBS, CNN, and quoted frequently in media like O, the Oprah Magazine, Red Book, Woman's World, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Wall Street Journal, CareerBuilder.com, and MSNBC.com, just to name a few. BJ conducts seminars and delivers keynote addresses at conferences and professional meetings internationally. And we here at Energy Awareness Radio are very fortunate to have her here tonight to discuss her most recent book, It's Never Too Late to Be What You Might Have Been. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, BJ. How are you being this evening? I am great. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure to have you. This is such a great title for the book, and I know... It, came, it was funny because this came up about a week ago. Uh, I had been talking to somebody about your book, and they had mentioned the writer George Eliot. And I said, well, wait, George Eliot was a woman. And they said, really? And I said, yes, And whose pen name was Marianne Evans. And I thought, wow, that's the title of the book. The book is from a quote. So I knew that. And it certainly yes. applies now just as much as it did then. And to be honest with you, it's always going to apply forever and ever and ever because people, you know, they always think it's too late. But if you would... Tell our listeners why that quote inspired you to write this book. It was a very personal experience. I had a a big birthday on the horizon a few years ago, and uh, like a lot of us when we have big, when we're facing big birthdays, you know the ones with a, a zero on the end of it. Yeah, I'm familiar. And, <laughs> yeah. And 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 we're often tempted to do sort of a an on-the-spot life review, and the, the mind being what it is, you know, the mind is a mismatch detector. It always notices what's wrong before it notices what's right. And as I was thinking about this birthday and I was putting on my makeup one morning and looking in the mirror, the the voice of hopelessness came up and said, oh, give it up, honey. You're you're never going to find Mr. Wonderful. You're You're never going to lose 30 pounds. You're never going to make a million dollars, and on and on and on and on like that. It's like it's too late. It's over. Gosh, by the time the voice of hopelessness was done, it's like, well, gee, I might as well just kill myself and get it over with. <laughs> and, and I was I was sort of bummed out for a couple of days. I tend to be a fairly cheerful person, but I do have my moments, and I was kind of bummed out for a couple of days. Then I came across George Eliot's quote, and I went, yes. That's it. That's going to be my new mantra for the rest of my life. Hopelessness, be gone. And I just, it just, it happened that fast. I just turned around 180 degrees. I thought it would make a great topic to write about, so I started writing about it. And then I was having a conversation with my good friend, Brenda Knight, who's also my publisher. And Mm -hmm. she said, oh, that's a great book title. It's a Diva Editions. And um, she said, "Would you write? A, would you write a book?" And I said, "I've already started." So <laughs> that's great, and what a great mantra that is! It's not too much different from a mantra I learned from a yoga instructor quite a few years ago, who said, "You already are everything you're trying so hard to become." Yes. You know, I mean, yeah. we are. We just need to be aware of it and start going toward it. And why, in the name of heaven, why, 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 why do we listen to all the self-deprecating remarks? It stops us from doing so many things. But why do we do that? It's just the way our minds work. You know, there, another one of my favorite sayings is, the mind is a dangerous place. Don't go in there alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's that, that we have these negative voices. Buddha Buddha taught about them 2,500 years ago. He called them, he said, the mind is full of what he called drunken monkeys. So yes. it, it, some people call it the committee. Some people call it the inner critic. Some people think it's their parents. Whoever it is, we all have it. And these monkeys are jumping around in there going, oh, my God, it's it's going to be bad, it's going to be really bad, oh, it's too late, it's awful, it's blah, blah, you know, and really the monkeys are, they're, they're fear monkeys. They're terrified, and they're actually trying to protect you by screaming warnings, but what they do is the monkeys just freak us out, and we believe them, 
and we lose track of any positive voices that go, now, wait a minute, I don't have any proof that, that God has ever dropped me on my head before. I don't have any proof that, you know, it's all over for me. Those monkeys are just insane. You know, the monkeys are just scared. And so Buddha actually taught that meditate. we use meditation, we use self-talk. There are a number of things we can do to to quietly calm the monkeys, tame them, and really see that they were just frightened and they were mistaken. It's not all over. It's not too late. The sky isn't falling. It's we're all we're all fine. And it's it's not even that we're going to be fine. We are fine today. I I love don't go in there. It's <laughs> you don't you know it's a dangerous place. Don't go in there alone. I mean that's just too funny. <laughs> well, if you if you think about you know another way of saying it is is that that you are the sky and your thoughts are clouds, and the right. clouds come and go. You know they, but we don't get our we don't let ourselves get all bent out of shape because there's clouds. We just go oh look there goes a the cloud. Oh there mm-hmm. goes another one. And so if you don't like the thoughts you're thinking now, wait two minutes. New ones will come. No. It, but we don't believe all the clouds. We just go, oh, there's clouds. Okay. Yeah, maybe I'll take an umbrella today. But mm. we don't let it run. We don't let our thoughts run our lives. We, particularly the negative thoughts, we try to tame and retrain. We can actually retrain our thoughts so that we look for the positive things in life, we look for what we want rather than focusing on what we don't want. And, and we really need to get better at that. And by the way, that's a, that's a great name for another book that you should write, The Mind is a Dangerous Place, Don't Go In There Alone. Um, <laughs> I don't want to look like that. <laughs> but we don't have proof that God dropped us on our heads. However, we do have proof of the exact opposite. But we yes. choose to ignore it. We choose not to acknowledge that we have proof that we've been picked up many times. We've been put in situations that are for our highest good all the time. Everything always works out. We have that proof because we're here. Yes, yes. I I, I, uh, I, I learned that lesson many years ago. Gosh, I was in um, college. It was an, I wish I could find it. It was an article in Psychology Today back in the days when it was only a magazine. And it was a, um, an interview with a psychiatrist by the name of Miller. I can't even remember what his first name was. But he had these Miller's maxims for the, hu- for the use of the human mind. And I think there were ten of them. And one was the mind is a mismatch detector. It always notices what's wrong before it notices what's right. In other words, he's saying that, that the mind has a negative default position. So unless you're you're navigating it deliberately in a positive direction, it will always go negative. My hunch is that it's biologically functional for us to be that way. If you if you think back to our cave caveman and cavewoman days, if you came home at the end of a hard day of hunting and walked into your cave and everything was fine, you could relax. But if you came home from a hard day and walked into your cave and something was amiss, that was danger. So it was biologically functional for you to notice danger signals before you notice everything that's okay. In other words, that enabled us to survive. But what's mm-hmm. happened over time is that that negative voice, that that mismatch detector goes crazy and so we end up with chronic fault finders, chronic complainers, chronic naysaying, and and almost everybody's mind I know is always picking out what's wrong, and, and, and perfectionism, of course, picking mm-hmm. out what's wrong in every situation and ignoring all the stuff that's right. That's true. Because And, and it's funny because when you do walk into your cave today, you can feel negative energy a whole lot quicker than you can feel normal energy. You know, you can feel when there's something wrong. You know that, okay, I can cut the air with a knife, you know, uh, what's going on here. And it automatically kind of sets you off because you're walking into it. It's hitting you like a ton of bricks. So you Mm -hmm. automatically get your 
you know, the red flags go up and now you're starting. Even if you were walking in and you were in a good mood, you won't be five minutes from now. You You just won't. It's sad. It is. But we can, the good news is science is telling us there's something they call neuroplasticity, Mm -hmm. that we could, that the mind is malleable. The mind is plastic. We can reprogram it. We can develop like a phonograph record. Remember, remember those from the old days, the phonograph records, and they had little grooves in them. Well, your mind is like that sheet of vinyl. You can actually reprogram new grooves so that your mind is singing a different song, rather than the sky is falling. The sky is falling. Your mind can be trained to say, "Oh, look at all the great stuff that's going on in the world." Yeah. Or, you know, I like to say, celebrate what's right with the world. Really, if you focus on what's right with the world, you'll get more of it. And if you focus on the way to do that is to shut off your TV because they're only telling you the things on the news that are not good. So shut yeah. the TV off. <laughs> the TV, the news that I know. I used to work for a newspaper. And, what, what you know, people complain about the news being so negative, but I always point out to them, the news, by definition, is that which deviates from the norm. So, of course, it's negative because 10 million people making it to work safely today, that's not news. That's right. normal. But the 10 who crashed their cars and didn't make it to work today, that's news. But if that's all we're hearing and reading, you know, the news, the news media, they're doing their job. Their right. job is to be the mismatch detector for all of us and point out what's what's wrong with the world so we can decide if we want to do something about it. But if that's all you listen to and all you pay attention to, then you're paying attention to only what's wrong with the world and you're missing 99% of what's right in the world. And you're perpetuating it. Yeah. You can't help but perpetuate it because now you go and you talk about it say, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? And I've literally put up my hand and say, no, I didn't, and I don't need to. It's not part of my world. I, I don't need I'm do, sorry. It has nothing to do I with do me. I do the same thing. I have a friend down the street who I'll see her when I'm out walking my dog, and she'll say, PJ, did you hear about it? I go, wait a minute, Gloria. Wait a minute. Is this a bad story? Is this an unhappy yeah. story? She goes, well, yes, but I go, eh, you don't want to hear it. No, thanks. Nope. Don't need Somebody to hear it. Else. Here's a dime. Call somebody else who cares because I don't. You know, <laughs> what are you, the town crier? <laughs> you know, I don't need to know this information. I don't even get a newspaper because it's only it becomes recycling. I don't need it. You know, so yeah, a yeah. lot of the stuff that's out there does it only helps us to do the negative things. And and there are ways that people can, uh, you know, turn things around. And one of them, as as you talk in your book, so much. I love. First of all, I love the acronyms you have in your book throughout the book. They're great because it's an easy way Thank to remember you. the word. Yeah, that was good. I liked that a lot. But there are a lot of people who, right now, I think, particularly now, are becoming aware of what is really, truly important in life. It's not about the money. It's not about the pre- prestigious job. It's not about uh, being in, you know, having control of other people. It's about life purpose, finding meaning, being calm and in control of the self rather than controlling of others. And I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, it's easy for people in those high-powered positions to leave and pursue their dream because they have the financial backing to do so. But what about the rest of us who have to make a living and we have to support, you know, a family and we can't just say I'm going to quit my job and, and you know, and go become an archaeologist or whatever it is that they want to do. How can people move toward their dream when they don't have the financial security that a life of big money jobs has given others? Well, that's a great that's a great question. And it is painful to lose material possessions, particularly if we're attached to them. And I had a very personal example of this in my own family. My son, when the recession hit, when was that about 5 years ago? Um he was he seemingly had it all. He had a $100,000 a year job with Warner Brothers. He owned a house in the San Fernando Valley. He had just bought a million-dollar house in Los Feliz. He leveraged um, the Valley House and took all the money out and bought six houses in Arizona. He drove a Jaguar. He had a cute girlfriend. He seemingly had it all. And yet what he found was it never made him happy. 
Uh-huh. He no sooner bought the million-dollar house, and it was like, huh, is that it? Well, what's next? And really, the, the, any joy that he had lasted about a week. <laughs> He'd be on. It was this chronic restlessness. He wasn't miserable. I mean, he spent a lot of money. He had a lot of friends. He drank a lot. He partied a lot. But there was just this nagging emptiness that there was like, remember that old song, Is That All There Is? Mm-hmm. And I think he was feeling that. Then the recession hit, the property market crashed, he lost all of his real estate holdings, he got fired oh. from his job at Warner Brothers, there was a big house cleaning going on, and he ended up living in my basement for a year. Now here's a guy in his late 30s, like 38 years old, living in his mother's basement with nothing, with nothing. He had lost everything he'd spent the previous 20 years earning. And he will tell you today that that was the best thing that ever happened to him. Yeah. Because stripping away all the material possessions enabled him to find, this is a quote, that that enabled him to find his way back to God. What he has now and he didn't have before is a spiritual life. He went on a pilgrimage to India for three weeks where he studied with Tibetan lamas. He came back a vegetarian. You know, what what furniture and possessions he had, he sold them and got rid of them. And he really got back to basics. And he also got closer to our family. Um, That, you know, when you're, and a lot of people have experienced that through the recession, is that, Losing losing a home, losing money, losing all that sort of stuff really reminded them what their real blessings were, which was family, friends, love, community, church. And yes, it's hard, and yes, it's painful, but for many people, they will tell you there was a silver lining in that recession, and they're still experiencing the positive benefits from it. So for those of you... Uh, your listeners who are really attached to their material possessions, I would just gently invite them to take another look and see if if those things, you know that old saying, the best things in life aren't things, mm-hmm. that, um, that sometimes having nothing gives you freedom to pursue something that you never would have pursued if you, if you thought you were going to lose your house or your money. You know, once you've lost... What what was that Janis Joplin lyric? Freedom's another word for nothing left to lose. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, there's something about having no possessions. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times just last Sunday, a cover story on the opinion page about a guy who had everything and now he lives in like a 600 square foot studio apartment. And he says, "I live in a very small space." And I have a very big life. And he, Mm. too, he didn't lose everything, but after having everything, he just realized it didn't make him happy. So he got rid of all of it. And now he travels. He lives simply. He lives close to the earth. And, um, you know, more and more people are discovering that. Yeah, I think they're discovering that, you know, the best things in life are free because you have the freedom. You know, you can, you can, you find that you're, when you do strip away all that stuff, you become less judgmental of other people. You're more compassionate, mm-hmm. you're more kind, you're more caring, you're more loving, you know, and that makes a huge difference because those are the things that really matter. And all of those things are free. You don't pay for that. You just can give that out and it is returned to you. And, it, but I think you have to be aware that it's being returned to you. And that's, that's the whole thing with, with it's never too late to be what you might have been. You need to be aware enough to know that you can do these things, that you can take your dream and make it happen because so many people have a dream and every once in a while they pull it out of, you know, the closet and dust it off and say, oh, yeah, that was a dream I had. And they they say it so longingly, but they don't do anything about it. They don't act on it. They're afraid. Yeah. I I think they're afraid. Because they've fallen into the trance, and our whole country is in a trance. Um, Mm. That material possessions, if you look at the messages all around us, 
you know, buy this. This will make you popular. This will make you happy. This will get you laid. This will do, whether it's mm-hmm. the car or the outfit or the high heels or the lipstick or whatever, that there's this, there's this deep anxiety that we all have within us. There's actually three basic fears. And the first fear is that I'm insignificant. The second is that I'm incompetent. And the third is that I'm unlovable. And and marketing and advertising knows that, and they prey mm-hmm. on those fears that if you have this, you'll be successful. It, it all comes back to self-esteem and how do we feel about ourselves. And if there's this nagging sense that you're not okay, you're always looking for something outside yourself to make that voice quiet down, to make that fear monkey shut up, that that. You know, yes, I am okay. See, I have this Ferrari. Yes, I am okay. See, I have this big high-powered job that we're driven by our insecurities and our our anxieties that we're, Rollo May called it the anxiety of emptiness, that we feel that emptiness and we try to fill it up with stuff. It's human nature. And and we do it at, at the tiniest levels. I mean, I this is funny. I have a show coming up on Sunday, a big expo. It's big. And I play quartz crystal singing bowls. So I'm going to be playing my bowls, and I'm going to have my little expo booth there with all the signage and everything. And someone said to me, take a picture. And I said, oh, yeah, take a picture. I don't have a camera. And they're like, well, use your phone. And I said, well, here's the problem. I can take a picture with my phone. I just can't get it out of my phone. And they said, why not? And I said, my phone's old. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, I can take the picture, but then it's in my phone. I don't have anything to, you know, I don't have software on my computer to take it out and put it. And they said, he just text it to someone. I said, I don't text. What do you mean you don't text? I don't text. If you want me, you can email me or you can call me. I'm working on patients all day. I don't have time to text. Can you imagine working on somebody and saying, oh, excuse me, I have to take a text? You know, I can't do that. So I check my email or you can phone me and I'll get back to you. I don't text. Well, how can you not text? I I just don't. So, therefore, I had to go to the store and buy a throwaway camera, which they told me once I brought it in they could process the film and put it on a disc for me so that I can email pictures to people. And I said, okay, that Mm -hmm. works for me. It was only 10 bucks, mm-hmm. 27 mm-hmm. pictures. I don't really care. I don't need that magic phone that everybody has that does everything for you. I don't need it. I just don't understand mm-hmm. why people are trying to force it down my throat. <laughs> well, you can always ask. Most of your friends probably have those magic phones. You can always ask oh, yeah. a friend to take the photo for you. Yeah, because you're going to be busy that I know. playing your yeah. bowls anyway. Yeah, you know, it's like, okay, you yeah, know, somebody, you know, Take a picture. I, it was just so weird because people do. They have to have everything. And when you look at it, you think, why, it wasn't that long ago we were not living with magic phones. It wasn't that long ago that you had to go home and check the voicemail. And prior right. to that, if you weren't at home, you didn't even know the phone rang because you weren't there. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. you had to be home to get the call. Really, what has changed? Not, not a whole lot except now we're so much in demand. And I think that puts more pressure on us to have the things and do the things, and it stresses people out. And then they don't think they can, they can do anything about having their dream come true. And I really believe that you can be anything you want if you want it. If you don't yeah. want something, no matter how hard you try, you will not succeed. You have to want it. Right. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, although I I do think I don't think the technology is 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 bad or or wrong or evil in and of itself. It's it's a tool. Mm-hmm. It's just like a just like a hammer, and you can use a hammer to build things that are wonderful: a chair, a table, a house. Or you can use your hammer to tear things down, and you can use it destructively. You can use it to kill somebody. And right. technology is like that as well. It's it's a neutral tool. It's how we use it. It's how we choose to use it that that either stresses us out and makes our lives more complicated or simplifies our lives and makes life easier for us. It's always a choice. But it also can be very, very addicting. And that... Yeah, that can create a whole different monster, if you will. And I think people, I think it's difficult for people to find their passion. They may be able to go online and see things and, and try to find, you know, work that they, oh, somebody's doing this or somebody's doing that, maybe I'd like that. But it is difficult sometimes. We're not all born knowing exactly what it is that we want to do. I mean, some people just know from the time they're, you know, born, 
Oh, I knew. Yeah. I always knew I was going to be a doctor. It's like, well, God bless you, you know, because I'm still trying yeah. to figure it out. <laughs> you know? So, and I remember watching Oprah years ago, and she'd say, you know, just find your passion and do it. And I'd say, yeah, easy for you to say, Oprah. You found yours like that. I mean, how do you find your passion? And that was, that's that's something that I think is kind of difficult for people, you know? Do, would you agree with that? Is there any trick to figuring it out? Well, I... I would. I got some really good advice along the way from a couple of of school advisors. And and first of all, I would say that it may not just be one passion. You're allowed to have more than one, mm-hmm. and that you may change passions uh, several times throughout. You you can you can run it like my son came home when he was eight years old and said, "I want a guitar." And I said, "Oh, sure you do. What do you want next week?" And he goes, "No, no, really, I want a guitar." <laughs> And he's been a musician ever since. But now he's in his early 40s, and now he's thinking, hmm, you know, I think I might be done with that. I think I might be, I don't know. I mean, he's still sort of reevaluating what's what's next. Um, In Oprah's case, I think it was her grandmother or something who said, you know, what do you want to do? And she said, I just like to talk to people. Mm-hmm. I just really like to talk to people, and that's what she's. And that's really that's what she does. She's made her whole career talking to people, but that, but talking to people could look different at different points in your life. You could be a preacher, you could be a radio personality, a TV, a newscaster, um, a public speaker. I mean, a social worker. There's lots of different professions that can evolve from the same passion. Or the passion might change. But I think in our society we have this this inclination to want to put people in a pigeonhole very early in life. Yes. And that's where the advice I got in college, um, my problem in college was everything looked good to me. And people were always saying, what's your major? What are you going to major in? Like, you have to choose now when you're 18 years old. And I think... Yeah, you don't know anything at 18. I don't know. I like this. This college counselor was really smart. He said, here's my advice. Don't declare a major. You know, we have this category called undeclared. So you're an undeclared person. And just take what excites you. Take what turns you on. Take what interests you. And by process of elimination, you'll end up with a major because you'll get into one class and you'll go, oh, this isn't what I thought it would be. And he said, drop it. Drop it as quickly as you can. Or, oh, this is really boring. Or, this is a lot hard. Oh, no, I don't want to do this. And he said, and over the course of four years, I guarantee you, you will have a major by the time you're done with college. (laughs) And I did exactly what he said, and he was right. I ended up with a major. And yeah, and that's a good idea because it's true. You don't know at 18 what you want to be. No. And you need to be able to take different classes to experience things to say, oh, God, I like numbers, but accounting, forget it. I'm not doing that, you know, and or, you know, oh, I think I'd like to do nursing. And then you see blood and you faint. Well, that's probably not for you. You know, it might be for somebody else, but it's not your thing. It's certainly never too late to go back to school. And I think people have more opportunity to do that now simply because, and we have more options to change or or recreate ourselves because we live longer. We do. We live a lot longer, and and the ability to reinvent ourselves. In fact, at least out here in California, the community colleges are overflowing because there's so many midlife folks whose mm-hmm. jobs disappeared, whose whole businesses went overseas or whatever, and they're going, you know what? I've been wanting to reinvent myself anyway. I always wanted to be a whatever it was, a mechanical engineer or an artist or whatever. So people are actually using their job loss as an opportunity, as a blessing. They're saying oh, that yeah. door closed. I'm going to go find a window that's open, and they go they go reinvent themselves. And we live so long, you can actually reinvent yourself three times, five times, as many times as you want to. And and the great thing about a, a free market and a democracy is there's nobody telling you, oh, you can't do that, you don't have this kind of certificate, or you don't have 10 years of training. I mean, for most professions, unless, of course, you're going to be a brain surgeon or something like that, uh, but most jobs don't require that intensive, um, particular technical kind of training. 
And even in my book, there's a there's a story about a gal who was in her 50s when she became a doctor. Mm-hmm. Really. I mean, you can go to medical school in your 30s and 40s. It's, you know, it really, but it's whatever you believe. If you believe your life is over and there's, it's too late to be what you wanted to be, then you're right. It is. Right. But well, if you yeah. believe that you can reinvent yourself, then you're right. You can. Yeah, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. It's whatever you, right. you believe. Whatever you believe, you can or you can't, you're right. Yes, and there are a lot of people that go to back to school um, in their 40s, 50s, 60s. I've heard of people graduating at 95 and getting a degree. I think it's awesome. I think it's great that people can do that. It's never too late to go back to school and try to do something different because you don't know where it's going to evolve, especially today. I heard some people talking uh, on, uh, on TV, and they were saying, the kids in college right now are actually being trained for jobs that don't even exist yet. Yeah. And I thought, okay, how do you train somebody for a job that doesn't exist yet? You know, but they're learning things that will evolve into jobs that will. And if you look back 10 years, just the past 10 years, there's tons of jobs out there right now that didn't exist 10 years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and whenever I'm doing career coaching or doing seminars, I always tell people what you want to develop is generic skills. You want to mm-hmm. learn how to do research. You want to develop flexibility. You want to develop creativity. You want to have language skills are really going to be an asset in the future as as business gets more and more global. If you can speak a second language, fabulous. You're more whether it's Spanish or Chinese or whatever it is, learn a second language. Um, there's also the generic skills. And then you've got your toolkit that you can take from job to job to job. I, I, I often joke that I've never yet gotten a job I was qualified to do. But what <laughs> I do have, I used, to, I used to get jobs like I would buy my son's shoes. I'd get him a couple sizes too big so that I could grow into them. And then mm-hmm. the first year, my learning curve would be practically vertical, and I'd be working my butt off. But I love the stimulation. I love the challenge. And if you get a job that you're a perfect fit at, within three years, you're going to be bored. Right. You know, the, the research indicates most people spend the first year learning the job. They spend the second year fine-tuning and polishing their skills. And then they spend the third year looking for their next job because they're bored. Right. That always happened with me. I was always bored at jobs. I would go in the first day, and I'd look around to see where do I want to be in six months, whose job do I want. And I would yeah. aspire for that position. And that person would move on, and I would get the job every single time. I knew yep. what job I wanted yep. because I knew I'm just going in entry level to get whatever so I can move ahead in this company. And I did it. I, I always did it, and it was just I was just too bored. I did not – I needed stuff to do all the time. And there would people – you know, people sit around on a job, and they don't work. And I'm thinking they're paying me, and I don't really want to be bored – I would like to be working and doing something. So I always needed to be have some kind of a stimulation. And I think creativity is huge, a part of it, in your toolkit because people will ask you to think outside the box more and more and more. It's, it's almost a requirement of every job to really think you way bet. outside the box. You and, bet. Creativity yeah. and innovation, and those are things that can be learned. They can be learned. You're not – people who say, oh, I'm not creative. They're just mistaken. Mm. Yes. That's true. They're, you know, because when we're born little kids, little kids are really, really creative. There, there's two kinds of thinking. There's divergent thinking and there's convergent thinking. Little kids are born with lots of divergent thinking. And divergent thinking says there are many answers to each and every problem. But the school system, at least the American school system, is set up sort of, you know, the Henry Ford model. It's assembly line education. It's one size fits all. Everybody has to take these standardized tests. And by the time they've gone through 12 years of school, their creativity is in the toilet. They've gotten very good at convergent thinking, which is there's one answer to this problem. This is the date the Declaration of Independence was signed, two and two always equals four, and so on. But their divergent thinking has shriveled up. So they actually have to relearn that divergent thinking, relearn, redevelop those creativity muscles for the job market of the future. It's too bad. I mean, our education system is archaic. 
it's just archaic. And you, you look at college, it's 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 no better. What are the vast majority of classes? A professor standing up there lecturing at people for an hour. Everyone mm. knows adults don't learn well that way. Right. Neither do children. Nobody learns well by sitting passively and listening to a lecture. They need. There's this old Chinese saying that says, "If I hear, I forget. If I see, I remember. But if I do, I understand." So experiential learning is is what we ought to be using in our public schools. And I think a lot more colleges right now are giving people the life experience tests in order to go back to school so they can have some of the credits so they can move forward more quickly. Mm-hmm. They're trying to do that because they get that. When you're talking about, you know, it's never too late to be creative, that that is an acronym, and that is a great acronym because it's not – you can start to practice this in daily life with little things around the house or in your job or, or going on a walk. I loved the, the acronym that you came up with here, uh, cultivate, an open mind, open your eyes, open your ears. And you can do that while you're walking because once you open your mind up to new things, you don't know what's going to come rushing into your head. You can get all kinds right. of ideas. Um, reach for new experiences. Explore ideas. Act on impulse and intuition. That's a huge one. People don't do that because they, they second-guess themselves, but as soon as they start to trust their gut, they can act on impulse and intuition, and your impulse and your intuition will always lead you down the right road. It never yep. fails if you yep. know how to listen to it. Take risks, and, and, you know, we do. Nobody's saying, you know, take a, take a calculated risk. Invite, yeah, invite color and light into your life. You know, so if you live in a house where everything is white, bring some color in, plant some flowers, bring in a plant, paint a wall, veer away from conformity. I think that's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not? Probably because I do that. <laughs> I don't conform to technology. I'm like, no, I don't need to text. Um, and express yourself, and there you go. I express myself as saying I don't need to text. That's another language, by the way, too, <laughs> that you yes, have to learn. Is. It really is. It's a crazy language that you have to learn in order to understand things. Um, but that that acronym, if you if people look at that and read it and just do those, you know, those those seven things, those eight things rather, you will you'll open yourself up and things will come to you and you will start to see changes happening. I mean, I have noticed it through the creative process. I'm sure you have as well. I think everybody does, don't they? I, I agree completely, and, and what helped me a lot was um, I, I think what gets in the people in many people's way is perfectionism. If I can't yeah. do it well, I don't want to do it at all. I don't want to look foolish. I don't want to feel stupid. I don't want to. And one of the best things I ever learned, I took that artist way class years ago uh, from a guy here in L.A., and it's based on Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. And in that book and in the class, uh, she said, we have to give ourselves permission to make bad art before we can make good art. And I went, oh, I can make bad art. I can do that. And so it really gave me a lot of freedom. I started cutting my own hair as a result of that because I was looking in the mirror one day going, you know, I just... I couldn't get quite the right haircut. I like that choppy, shaggy, sort of spiky look. And I thought, what I need is a bad haircut. It's <laughs> sort of uneven all over. And I thought, I could do that. I could give myself a bad haircut. And I grabbed some scissors and I started cutting my hair. And it actually looked great. It was just like I like it, all choppy and uneven and spiky. Now, I'm not suggesting everybody start with their hair. But whatever <laughs> you're doing... You know, whether it's painting furniture, give yourself permission to make bad art before you can make good art. It's like you have to walk before you can run. But so many people, they go to the museum, they look at Picasso, and they go, oh, I could never paint like that. And so they never Oh, my start. God, anybody could paint like Picasso. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe really. I picked the wrong one, uh, Rembrandt. <laughs> Okay, there you go. Or they hear some fabulous musician and they'd love to play guitar, but they go, oh, I can never play like that. Yeah. Because they don't realize that everybody was bad in the beginning. There are very few natural-born geniuses. And all the artists, all the creative people made 
I read this article once about professional photographers who said even the best professional photographers have to take about a hundred shots to get one or two really good ones. And I think, oh, okay. So they have to make lots of bad shots before they get one or two good ones. I thought, I just found enormous freedom in that sense of letting go of the notion that every single thing has to be perfect. Mm. Most of them won't be. Most of them will be pretty bad. God, I just got a camera that takes 27 pictures. i got to go get three more. (laughs) (laughs) If you get one out of 27, you'll be doing good. If I get one out of 27, you know. It's interesting because this is the part that everybody wants to hear about. When you talk about it's never too late to have money, okay? Now, first of all, I'm reading the book, and I get to the Sophie Tucker jazz singer quote, and I almost <laughs> fell off my chair laughing because it start, I, I'd love to read it because it starts out so nice. It says, Please do. I love that quote. Yeah, go ahead and read it. From birth to age 18, a girl needs good parents. That, that's so true. And from 18 to 35, she needs good looks. And that's true, too. From 35 to 55, she needs a good personality. And from 55 on, she needs cash. <laughs> I started laughing and I thought, oh, my God, that's true. It's so funny. And then you, your acronym was hysterical, too, because the acronym for money is make it, own it, never ignore it, enjoy it, and then yak about it. And every single one of those things is so true. I mean, how did you come up with that? It's just so true. <laughs> Well, one of my specialties is writing writing those things. They're actually there's actually a specific name for them. They're called acrostics, which I just found out a few years ago. I thought they were acronyms too, and somebody said, okay. "No, no, no, those those are acrostics." And I went, "Oh, where where uh, you know the first letter of a word spells out all these different words, but with money in particular, I I wanted to boil it down to the basics, and and the most important one of those is the last one, which is yak about it. Because yeah. money is the last taboo in our society. We'll talk about incest. We'll talk about drug abuse, our alcoholism, going to jail, whatever. But by God, don't ask me about my money. Mm-hmm. And it's this, it's like there, there's something dirty and shameful and secretive and and so I'm I'm all for starting a new movement that we need to shine the light of day on money to take the mystery out of it, to take the mythology out of it, to take it's so loaded with shame and guilt. I mean, people who have a lot of money, some of them are embarrassed that they have it and they don't want to talk about it. And people who have no money, they feel embarrassed and they don't want to talk about it. And we have, oh, it's such a, an emotionally loaded topic and and you know there's that old saying that we're we're only as sick as our secrets and if we're never t- if we're not talking about money i guarantee you there's some pathology going on there in your relationship with money yep yeah i think so i mean one of the other quotes in here is money isn't everything but it ranks right up there with oxygen Yes, it does. You know, I'm like, okay, Rita Davenport, pretty good. You know, she's a comedian, and that's funny, but it's true because people put so much on it, and it's really just a form of energy exchange. It's just a, if you look at it as paper and you just say, okay, I'm, I need to pay a bill, and the bill that I got, I already have the services for. They already gave me the electricity for the month, and I was able to put lights on in the house, and I was able to cook and, and you know heat the house and do whatever it is I needed to do, and now they're asking me, for money because they gave me that. So they trusted that I would pay them, you know, in backwards. Yes. And you, you have to your be grateful energy to make the money to pay mm-hmm. for their energy. You're absolutely right. Money's another one of those things like a cell phone or a hammer. It's a tool. It's, it's a symbol. It's a means of exchange. So rather than hauling chickens and eggs and produce and stuff around to pay for whatever we need, we all agree to use this symbol, this paper symbol, which means I'm going to give you X units of my energy to pay for that thing that you produce with X units of your energy. It's just a convenient means of exchange is all, but we've loaded it up with all this symbolic meaning about self-esteem and control and power. It's become, I mean, some people worship money. It's become their God. It's become, 
a religion, and I I think that's I think we do that to our detriment. We we totally lose track of what's behind the money, what you know, what the money is meant to symbolize, and um, and I I think it hurts us. And and I think people are always you know oh money is the root of all evil. Actually, it's not. You know, I mean, I don't know where that came from, but I'm like, I really don't like that. Money is not the root of all evil. Money is what allows people with money, first of all, are able to help people without money. And so when people are saying, oh, you know, Bill Gates shouldn't have as much money as he has, why shouldn't he? He earned it. Right. Why shouldn't he have it? I mean, you know, so what? The guy went to Harvard, didn't finish, and he made all this money. He earned it. He earned it. And he's doing good stuff with it. We have this funny notion in America, you know, we admire people who become successful and rich up to a point. Yes. And when they get beyond that point, what we think is too rich, then we want to tear them down. We attack them for it. We're kind of crazy that way. You know, we're, we're, we're ambivalent. We're schizophrenic about, about money. It's, and what's really interesting is that there are gender differences. The more successful a man becomes, the more we applaud him. The more successful a woman becomes, the more we don't like her. Mm -hmm. That's very true. That's going to take years to go away, I think. I don't think that's something that's going to happen overnight. But what I find interesting, I was talking to someone who said, well, you know, Bill Gates, I just think he has way too much money. And, you know, look at all of his products. He's using the roads more than anybody else in this country delivering PCs. And I said, really? He's also employing a whole bunch of people. A whole bunch of people have jobs because of him, and we have technology because of him. How can you, how can you split it and say, well, you know, he, he's using the roads more than the rest of us? How do you know? How do you? Know? Right. I mean, you know, seriously, that's just crazy talk. I'm like, wow, that is somebody who really, really is begrudges everything that Bill Gates does. He's he's very philanthropic, as is his wife, and they do an awful lot. And you know what? They don't have to. It's their money. They earned it. Right. They don't have to. Darn thing! Nobody does, right? But, you know, you but a lot it, of people share that. There's, a, there's, so, we have this love-hate relationship with people who are successful. On the one hand, we admire them, and this is true internationally as well. If you, if you see why do, why do so many people in other countries hate us? It's actually a love-hate relationship. On the one hand, they love our culture; they want their blue jeans and their tennis shoes and their iPhones and this and that and the other thing, but at the same time, they resent the the dominance, the cultural influence. So they, there's this love-hate, again, it's this schizophrenia about money. So maybe it's human, maybe it's not just American, but that we, we just have, we have mixed feelings about money. On the one hand, we 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 like it and we all want it, but at the same token, like too much of it is bad or or it's the root of all evil, and, you know, we're just kind of, we're all money crazy, which is another reason why we ought to talk about it more, because when you can talk about it and get it out in the open, some of that craziness disappears. Sure, put it in its proper perspective instead of the way that it is right now, and maybe people would look at it differently, and I bet they would acquire more, you know, what they need in order to live and have a better life and pursue their dreams because they look at money a whole lot differently. That's you know that's something yeah. that that I think would work too. How um how did you find all the people in your book to interview? I mean you have they, they there are stories in almost every single uh, chapter yeah. and it's very very interesting. But I'm wondering how did you find these people? How did you choose? It must have been hard. I put out a query on um, I subscribed to something called PR Leads, which is a, a, a PR service. And basically, it's a subscription to ProfNet, where reporters post queries all the time looking for experts to interview. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing that, I also had the opportunity to post my query, and and it goes out uh, certainly nationally. It may even be international. And I, I said, I'm writing, a, I'm writing a book on It's Never Too Late to Be What You Might Have Been. I'm looking for people who've... Uh, here are my topics. It's never too late to make money, to find true love, to become creative, whatever. I looked at the topics, and I asked for people to contact me. And what I did was I didn't ask them to write their own stories because 
most people don't think they can write very well, and that would have turned them off right there. So I, I called and said, I will interview you and write the story for you. All you have to do is have a phone conversation with me. And so I got responses from people all over the country. So there's people from Michigan, from North Carolina, from New York, from Arizona. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends here in California, but I didn't want to make it a California book. I wanted to make sure that it was national and that I had stories from men, from women, people. I think everybody in the book is over 40. So they're from their 40s into their 80s. And different generations, some Jewish folks, some non-denominational folks, all different kinds. I just wanted to make sure I had um, lots of different voices around the common themes. And I actually didn't get as huge a response as I expected I I might, so I only had to rule out a, a, a few of them. You know, most of them were right on target. Maybe they self-selected and they did a good job of it. But that's how I, that's how I found them. I put out queries. Uh, on this uh, ProfNet News Network, and I I just dealt with the responses I got. Well, I love it because they're real people. This isn't like you're taking celebrities that everybody knows. This this brings it into anybody can do this. This makes it real to the reader. It's not, you know, this is how Oprah got where she is or this is how this person got where they are or, you know, you're not using right. celebrities' stories everybody knows. So many people do that when they write a book and say, well, look at how this person got there and everybody thinks, yeah, but that's that person. These are real, ordinary people. They're ordinary people that live in the United States that, you know, live in houses and in subdivisions like everybody else and they're telling a story and you can resonate with it a lot better because you know, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. It doesn't, it's not intimidating. Right. I thought right. that was really good. I was wondering how you did that because I thought, does she know all these people? <laughs> does she know I do now. Oh, well, yeah. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I, do I now. didn't before. Now, I did include one celebrity story in each chapter just mm-hmm. because I know there's a certain percentage of readers who like celebrity stories. But I tried to pick some that weren't as, as overdone. Like there's a story about Gina Davis in this chapter about it's never too late to be athletic. And, yes. you know, she went on to be an Olympic archer. And I thought, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had to hunt a little harder. And then there were a couple stories that people already know, like Colonel Sanders making his money yeah. after age 65. Uh, people probably knew that already. Um, uh, Hopper, Dennis Hopper, becoming an artist later in life. He became a painter. I mean, not only was he a good actor, he became a painter, a very successful painter. And so I, I tried to look for stories of so. Uh, uh, so there's just one in every chapter, and I think there are three or four non-celebrities in every chapter. Yes, and so those are the ones that. Balance. Yeah, yeah, it was a good balance because it showed you that, okay, here's the celebrities and we know these people. And you might know the story, you might not, and it's interesting if you didn't know the the tidbit about them. But it was so – I was looking at it differently. Like there is so much here that someone can take away because real people are doing this. It's not that you have to be a celebrity and that's why you're able to do that. Because once you're a celebrity, nobody gives you credit for being a normal person and making it to being a celebrity. That's right. They think your life has always been easy because you've always yeah. been a celebrity. Yeah. But the even other, though, the even other thing I did um, is that I, at the end of every interview, I asked the person I was talking to, what would you advise others? So every single story ends with one, two, three, or four specific, practical, doable tips. So it's not just the story. It's here's the advice I'd give you based on my experience. So that right. it's 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 inspiring and practical. There's how tos at the end of every single story in there. Yeah, I, I really like it because of that and the realness of the people and the tips are easy to understand. It's not like it's anything that, you know, oh well I can't do that. I mean, you know, you say start small, you know? Start small. That's that's the way you want to do certain things. I remember reading that in one of them. It was uh, it was probably the athletic one to start small and get an exercise buddy to go with you, something like that. Um, so I, I looked at these and I thought these are easy things for people to do. This is a great book to put you in the right direction that you need to be in, in order to make your dreams come true. And I, I enjoyed it. It was you know it was fun. It was easy to read. 
and it's easy to do. I think that's more important, actually, that it's easy to follow and to to do what it is you need to do to get your life in the right position so that you can make your dreams come true. And unfortunately, we're almost at the top of the hour, BJ. I can't believe it. But before we, we say goodbye, are. It just I know. Hard, isn't it? <laughs> Would you please tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, the work that you do? I, I think you have a, a presentation coming up soon, a conference coming up soon on April 10th, is it? I do. I'll be speaking down in Orange County, California at what's called the Inside Edge. So anybody in the Southern California area who who wants to uh who wants to come, just Google the Inside Edge and there's information. It's a breakfast meeting, it's like seven o'clock in the morning or something on the on the tenth. And mm-hmm. um in in terms of reaching me, I'm very easy to find. I'm all over the internet. My website is bjgallagher.com. People can get my books in their local bookstores. If if uh, they're not available or or your bookstore is too small, there's always good old trusty Amazon. Right, right. And I, you know, it's just this hour went by fast. We we certainly talked about a lot of things. We could have talked for another hour, probably. <laughs> yes, I certainly could have. <laughs> Thank you for your time, listeners. We need you to spread the word. If you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, share it with your friends. Send the link to the show so that they can be made aware of all the wonderful things that are offered on this show. Every single one of my guests shares their time freely. They give us a minimum of 60 minutes out of their day to help us all. And as you are all aware, they do it at no charge. You pay nothing for the wisdom and knowledge that you receive here at Energy Awareness Radio. So make sure you tell everybody about it, pass the word, and maybe they'll be able to grow and learn and make this world better for everyone as well. Uh, BJ, thank you again for sharing your time with all of us. It's really been a pleasure having you on the show. I had a ball. <laughs> I had a great highlight time. of my day. Thanks. Oh, that was sweet. Thank you so much. <laughs> on behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in this evening. My name is T Love, and I hope you'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for another great show. Mark your calendar so that you remember to tune in. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantum-wellness-center.com. This weekend on Sunday, there is the largest holistic health expo in New Jersey in Pompton Plains. So check that out, and you can come and listen to me play bowls and see a whole bunch of vendors there. It's only $10 entry fee. Uh, check. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T. Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well.
Stop it. 